Welcome to Columbus Perspective, the weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. This week, Family Advocacy Day was held in Washington, where children's health advocates discussed their top priorities with lawmakers. I'll talk with the head of the Children's Hospital Association about it in a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend discusses major legislation being considered at the Ohio State House, a joint resolution to remove slavery from Ohio's Constitution as a punishment for crime, and the push to keep kids safe on social media platforms. In about 35 minutes, I'll focus on Northwest Ohio and have a conversation with the mayor of Findlay about issues that city is focused on. And I'll wrap up the hour with the head of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, which is out with its annual Kids Count Data Book, which ranks Ohio 29th overall in 16 categories related to the well-being of children. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Amy Knight, who is the president of the Children's Hospital Association. How are you? I'm good, Dave. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Children's Hospital Association? The Children's Hospital Association is a national organization that represents more than 200 hospitals nationwide, many of those who actually are in Ohio that are children's hospitals taking care of our nation's children. So we are based in Washington, D.C., and we're excited this week to have Family Advocacy Day with many families and children traveling from across the country to talk to their congressional leaders. And I would guess that this Family Advocacy Day, in the wake of the pandemic that is finally kind of uh, fading uh, away, at least for now, uh, is as important as ever. It is incredibly important. So this is the first time in several years, as you've noted, that we've actually been able to bring children and family to Washington, D.C. So like many other things in the past few years, we did it via Zoom for a couple years. But there's nothing like a child and a family telling their story directly to their congressional member and the opportunity Um, For a congressional member to turn around in their office versus an adult constituent really changes the nature of the discussion and provides an opportunity for the family to tell their unique experience receiving specialized health care from providers and children's hospitals. So it really provides an opportunity to talk about some of the current issues facing children, um, whether that's access to physicians, whether that's mental health services, or other important things that they individually may face in their own care journey. What is the, the biggest concern that, the, that children's hospitals and, and healthcare advocates for kids have these days? There's a lot. So I think mental health certainly um, rises near the top. We've been talking about that for a couple of years, as you note, coming out, to the pan- coming out of the pandemic. Um, we're seeing a, a significant increase in mental health um, needs among children. So there was the prior 10 years before the pandemic, we already saw a pretty significant growth. And so the pandemic exacerbated that. So um, two important parts of mental health certainly are having enough workforce to be able to provide the care for um, children that have mental health needs. That's not only psychiatrists, it's also psychologists and therapists and school-based providers. So we're very focused on um, starting to intervene earlier in, in mental health services and making sure that we have an infrastructure that can set our children up for success later in life. Importantly, um, workforce, which I think is an issue overall in our country right now, but particularly for children's hospitals and for um, children's providers overall. So CHGME, which is a specific program that trains pediatric doctors, um, more than half of them nationwide. And I think even in Ohio, there's nearly 100,000 pediatricians and pediatric specialists that received their training through CHGME-funded programs. So Congress is is looking at that again this year um, to make sure that they're going to reauthorize that. So we very much support, and um, it's been a bipartisan-supported program 
since its inception nearly 25 years ago. So we're very excited to talk to them about uh, the specially trained pediatric workforce. The children's hospital uh, industry in Ohio, uh, as you mentioned, uh, is a pretty big deal. I know Cincinnati just received the top rating in the annual reports that come out and, and nationwide children's in Columbus also in the top 10. Absolutely. You all have a fantastic um, infrastructure for children's hospitals that have provided amazing care for kids throughout Ohio. So ensuring that they continue to have the resources they need to to do um, what they are doing every day for not only the kids that live in those cities, but also for kids in the rural areas of Ohio. And, And frankly, many of those hospitals serve children from across our country because they have special programs that that others just can't have or don't aren't able to provide. So an important piece of that is making sure that they have the reimbursement and the funding through insurance programs. And another important topic we'll be talking about with legislators is Medicaid and CHIP. So Medicaid is a federally sponsored health insurance program uh, that includes quite a few children, nearly 50% of our nation's children. And I think that number is the exact same for Ohio. So about 50% of the kids in Ohio rely on Medicaid and or CHIP um, for their health insurance program. So talking to Congress, congressional leaders about how important it is to reimburse kids care the same way we reimburse adult health care. Is, is something that will certainly be top of mind and that these kids will be raising um, for these hospitals and the physicians that work in them to be able to provide the care that they do. Talking with Amy Knight, she's the president of the Children's Hospital Association. Well, these factors that you're talking about certainly are health care issues, but unfortunately, they're also political issues these days. Do you find that to be a roadblock when you're talking to lawmakers? As I mentioned earlier with CHGME, um, historically it's been a bipartisan program for the past 25 years. So I think the one one thing that when you talk to any congressional leader, everyone will say they care about kids. So as you note, we live in a highly politicized and charged environment this year. So we're hoping kids can be a common ground um, for our congressional leaders and recognizing that we must all rally around them, whether that be um, for their health care or their education, in order to continue to provide um, the the infrastructure and the resources that we all need as a society. So absolutely, it comes up, and there are times that the conversation can be difficult. Um, but we very much feel that that children are a bipartisan issue, and that, and that's been our stance going in. So um, Family Advocacy Day provides another great opportunity to remind. Um, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or, or something else, that um, we're all about children. So it's an opportunity for kids to, to remind our legislators about what's most important. On Family Advocacy Day, which is going on three days during this week, what, uh, what about the families that participate in the, in the personal stories that they tell? How important is that in trying to get some of these messages out? It's actually the most important. So it's easy to talk about children in broad generalities, but to have that personal story and that experience, you know, many of the um, congressional members that they will be talking to are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or just friends. And so it's, it's a very connected opportunity for them to be able to share their journey. You know, the theme this year is fearless for kids' health, fearless today for a better tomorrow. And, you know, I think there's there's nothing, no bigger fear that anyone has than having a sick child. And so seeing it through the eyes of the child and their strength, their resiliency, and, and the sacrifices that these families have made to ensure that their children, um, their health and well-being is at the, at the forefront of all that they do. So it's very inspiring um, and it's very humbling. So it, it's the perfect opportunity to connect 
of our congressional leaders um, with the children and family that they serve every day. Amy Knight, President, Children's Hospital Association. If folks want more information about this activity, uh, how do they find it, Amy? Um, you can go to our website, which, is, again, it's the Children's Hospital Association, so www.childrenshospitals.org. And there's a plethora of resources there. Also, obviously, you noted the many amazing children's hospitals in um, Ohio, and their websites are full of fantastic resources um, for families and children in the state. Okay, Amy, thanks so much for the information and your time today. All right, thank you, Dave. You all have a wonderful day. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits? Use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement Social Security card. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. face the state. Policy is moving forward, some of it drawing controversy. Several groups showed up at our state house to call for action or protest action from lawmakers on a few different fronts. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday morning on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Lawmakers are combining two bills into one in an effort to ban access to care and participation in sports for transgender children. House Bill 68 is known as the SAFE Act. A House committee combined two bills into one. The new House Bill 68 would ban gender-affirming care for children and bar transgender athletes from participating on girls' sports teams in schools. Opponents of the bill say the legislation is an attack on the transgender community. Republicans say it's necessary to protect children's physical and mental health. Meantime, the American Medical Association is reaffirming its promise to protect access to gender-affirming care. The policy board for the nation's largest physicians group passed a resolution opposing laws that block access to such care for people who identify as transgender or gender-diverse. According to the Human Rights Coalition, 20 state legislatures have passed bans on gender-affirming care up to the age 18. Lawmakers in six other states, including ours, are considering bans. A new Gallup poll clearly shows public opinion moving in one direction when it comes to transgender athletes. 69% of Americans believe athletes should compete on teams that match their sex at birth. That's up from 62% in 2021. There was also a demonstration against Senate Bill 83. 
it would ban mandatory diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in colleges and universities. It also bans university staff from striking. Protesters held a mock funeral, they say, to mourn the loss of higher education. Senate Bill 83 has already passed the Senate and is now working its way through the House. People who live in East Palestine are calling for emergency help. Neighbors say they need Governor Mike DeWine to declare an emergency for their community to access federal support. Many of these people say they're still experiencing symptoms from exposure to the toxic chemicals. And they say they've been left with more questions than answers about their futures. We need this help now. We need help now. We must now demand that Governor DeWine assign emergency declaration for East Palestine. 10 TV's Carly Dion takes a closer look. We need this help now. We need help now. East Palestine residents hoping their request is heard loud and clear. And we must now demand that Governor DeWine assign emergency declaration for East Palestine. That demand bringing dozens of supporters to the state house, sharing personal stories from the last four months. February 3rd. February 3rd. It's a day that will be etched in the minds of residents of East Palestine and its surrounding communities for the rest of their lives. And my family has lost everything. A fiery train derailment released toxic chemicals into the air, ground, and water that day. The impacts of this disaster still affecting those who live there. Because people are still getting sick. It started with respiratory illnesses, nosebleeds, intestinal issues. It's easy enough to say just pick up and leave, but would you have the money to do that, to replace everything in your home? Many families left with no choice but to move, leaving behind lifelong homes and memories that can't be replaced. I still visit my home daily just to manicure the yard and look after things the way that I knew my grandfather would want done. Other families still deciding whether to leave behind their new beginnings. We had just purchased a home about a year ago. Jess and Chad Connard bought their dream home with their three boys in February of 2022, about two and a half miles from where it happened. Now still living there, she says her family is still experiencing minor symptoms. We're not really sure what to do next. We'll never be able to sell our house. Connard says she and her husband are still figuring out what's next for them, with more questions than answers on the possible risks that lie ahead. We want to stay, but we only want to stay if it's safe. Our thanks to Carly Dion for that story. One bill that lawmakers say will save children's lives is moving forward with a much more positive response. The Ohio House passed legislation to require AEDs in all schools and at sporting events. House Bill 47 also requires proper training on the devices for school staff and coaches. The goal here is to prevent children from dying from sudden cardiac arrest. Right now, schools in Ohio are not mandated to have an AED on site. In 30 other states, they are required. The bill now goes to the Senate. Just in time for the celebration of Juneteenth, news that may surprise you. Ohio's Constitution allows for slavery, and lawmakers are considering a resolution to change the document. Article 1, Section 6 of the Constitution of the State of Ohio reads, There shall be no slavery in this state, nor involuntary servitude, unless for the punishment of crime. The language has been in place since 1851. Well, now, in 2023, lawmakers have mounted a new push, a joint resolution, in fact, to remove both slavery and involuntary servitude from the state's constitution as a punishment for crimes. I talked with State Representative Dontavius Geralds, who introduced this proposed amendment. 
what does that say to every single black and, and brown person who live and work in this state? And so for me, as I said before, I don't want my grandchildren and children growing up and seeing the founding document of our state still have slavery in it. And so let's get it out. I mean, it, I think this will pass overwhelmingly if given the opportunity to get in front of the voters. And that's a challenge now is to get it before the voters in August. Correct? That is correct. So we have to get through the House and then if when it passes the House, I'm speaking into a firm that when it passes the House, we have to then pass it in the Senate. And then uh, from there, we'll be able to put it directly on a ballot. And then um, the language doesn't say it's this would apply just to black people. No, it does not. This is all people. I mean, uh, and, and the other part, too, I think is really in- important to talk about is, you know, there is a connection to human trafficking. Right. Um, you know, what we're talking about is all slavery, talk about all involuntary servitude in every instance, perspective, condition you can think of. And so um, what we want to say is that as, as a state, we don't want any form of slavery or involuntary servitude ever in this state. And so whatever that looks like, whoever that impacts, we want the, our, our founding document to make sure that that, again, we don't have it's not legal to to hold someone um, in that way uh, ever. State Representative Geralds is working across party lines on this. He's working with State Rep. Phil Plummer from the Dayton area. He's a Republican. Their amendment is now in the Constitutional Resolutions Committee. We will tell you how that progresses. Ohio Senator J.D. Vance made headlines for his claims about former President Trump's indictment. 10TV News reporter Kevin Lander spoke with him over the phone. Here's a portion of that interview. You've called the indictment a sham. If that's the case, what are you saying about the DOJ? Well, what I'm saying is the DOJ has has unfortunately become fundamentally political. And and the argument that I'd make to people who are skeptical of Donald Trump is, look, this isn't just about Donald Trump. If you look at a Catholic father of seven arrested for political activism in front of his own children, you look at the Department of Justice going after parents who are peacefully protesting at their kids' schools, but also leaving very hardened criminals to walk our streets, there is way too much politics at the leadership of the Department of Justice and way too little justice and equality under the law. And I think that's a problem that the U.S. Senate needs to take on. I'm actually going to announce some policies this afternoon to try to make that problem a little bit better. But really, this is not, to me, this whole case is not about Donald Trump. This is about whether we have impartial application of justice. And that's why I'm so concerned about it. Donald Trump uh, is the former president, is a very wealthy guy. I really worry about everyday common Ohioans. What do we have if not the rule of law in this country? But people will argue this isn't political. This is about a discussion about whether or not a law was broken. Well, I think that, one, I don't think the law was broken. But even if you assume, let's sort of take the critic's argument at face value and say for assumption and for the sake of argument that the law was broken here. If you only prosecute one person of one political party for breaking that law and you don't prosecute the other political party for breaking the law in the exact same way, that, again, is not impartial administration of justice. That's political targeting. And that's what I'm really concerned about. The senator claimed there is a double standard. We want to verify and bring in reporter Casey Decker. 
Former President Trump and his supporters are claiming the recent federal indictment over mishandling classified documents is a politically motivated witch hunt. They say several other politicians have also gotten in trouble for how they handled sensitive material, including Joe Biden, former Vice President Mike Pence, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Yet, Trump is the only one who's been charged with crimes. But is that the only reason his case is different from the other three? Let's verify. Our sources, the full text of the indictment of Trump, then FBI Director James Comey's statement on the Clinton investigation, statements by Biden's attorney, a letter by Pence's attorney, and the Department of Justice. We'll go through each case one by one. When he left the White House, Donald Trump took boxes of documents to his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. The DOJ investigation showed that hundreds of the documents were classified, some dealing with military operations and nuclear weapons. They were stored in bathrooms, on stages, and in storage closets at the club, according to the indictment. Joe Biden had documents from his time as vice president at his home in Delaware and a private office in D.C. According to CBS News, about 20 of those documents were classified. They were stored in a locked closet in his D.C. office and his garage and home library in Delaware. Mike Pence had several documents in his home in Indiana. We don't know exactly how many, what they covered, or where specifically in the home they were stored. And Hillary Clinton was investigated not for physically storing documents from her time in office as Secretary of State, but for transmitting classified information over a private email server instead of via secure government channels. The FBI found that more than 100 emails contained classified info out of the roughly 30,000 they examined. The Bureau did not release details about the classified emails they found. So all four had classified material where they shouldn't have. All four were investigated by the Justice Department. So what makes Trump's case different? Primarily, it's what he did after the documents were discovered. When Biden's lawyers found classified documents in his office and home, they immediately notified the DOJ and the National Archives, and the material was handed over the next day. Pence instigated the search of his own home in Indiana and immediately turned over the documents found there. And Clinton cooperated with the FBI's investigation, turning over roughly 30,000 emails. The FBI did note that her team didn't turn over thousands more they considered to be personal and not work-related, but also noted there was no evidence Clinton's team intentionally hid anything important from investigators. But according to the indictment against Trump, the former president not only didn't cooperate or promptly return documents, he actively obstructed the investigation. Of the 37 counts he's facing, six involve misleading, lying to, hiding evidence from, and conspiring to thwart investigators. The others are for keeping the documents in the first place. The Pence and Clinton cases were both closed, with no charges recommended. A DOJ special counsel has been assigned to the Biden investigation, which is still ongoing. With your Verify, I'm Casey Decker. Senator Vance also threatened to block DOJ nominees over the Trump indictment. We asked Democratic Sherrod Brown, Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, excuse me, about that. I don't think the Justice Department should do what it needs to do. Um, the, the indictment of the president, former president, was done by a group of 12 citizens randomly picked. But um, my job is to focus on on. You know, and making sure we get this child tax credit, making sure families get child care, making sure the railroads um, are safer than they've been. And with all the derailments, not just East Palestine, but all the derailments in Ohio, the justice justice system will work it out. Uh, My job is to focus on workers in the middle class. 
a parental approval to sign up for social media. What Ohio leaders are asking from the General Assembly. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Parents, sadly, are not always aware of what their children are seeing and what they're doing online. And children are online a lot. Recently, the U.S. Surgeon General called for lawmakers to take action to protect young people from social media. There are some options parents can take advantage of right now to monitor their child's use of social media. TNTV's Carly Dion back again with more on a number of different resources designed for parents to monitor what their child might be posting and with whom they're communicating. Let's face it, a lot of moms and dads don't have any idea how any of this works. Lieutenant Governor John Houston is talking about social media, which is why he is proposing the Social Media Parental Notification Act as part of the governor's executive budget. None of us would think it's a good idea to allow a stranger to have a conversation in the privacy of your child's room and collect data on them. Yet that's exactly what's happening through these social media applications. The act would put parental restrictions in place for any adolescent under the age of 16 wanting to use social media or online gaming platforms. Houston says they've allowed social media companies to weigh in on the act to ensure they can comply with what it would require. But until it's passed, there are other measures parents can take right now to get more involved. There are tools that families can use not only to monitor their own child's social media use to protect their children, but also to supervise and parent their children who may be using it in inappropriate ways as well. Lori Chris is the director of the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. She says there are free tools available online for parents looking for advice on how to talk to their kids about social media use. There's also a number of smartphone apps that allow parents to pay for services like real-time monitoring of texts and social media. And there's also options like Aqua One, a smartphone for kids designed for parents to monitor their children's activity. Every action that a child takes on social media, regardless of what platform, all of that is sent to a parent dashboard all in real time. CyberDive CEO and co-founder Jeff Gottfurst says the phone can track more than 3,700 different social media sites. As a parent himself to three children, he says Aqua One was designed with parents in mind. We wanted parents to have the power and the ability to see who is talking to their kids in 
in the bedroom at night when the door is closed. Godfer says the smartphone also locks three times a day to check in on the child's mental health. He attended the press conference to show his support for state legislation to give power back to the parents. It is time for government to help take control of what is happening to kids, and it starts at the state level. Lieutenant Governor Husted says he's urging the General Assembly to pass this act within the executive budget as soon as possible. And remember, families can also call 988 if they have any questions or concerns about their child's mental health or potential for self-harm. For many teens, the scariest part is trying to figure out how to fix their social media mistake. 10TV found a tool that could help. Well, you can't go back in time and unsend. We can help you move forward. This is video from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It recently launched a service called Take It Down. It's a tool that could help remove sexually explicit images online. We have a link at 10tv.com slash featured links. Millions of dollars are going to support children who navigate school with the guidance of an individual edu- individualized education plan. The state's controlling board, with State Representative Mary Lightbody, approved a $2.7 million increase for the Department of Developmental Disabilities. The boost will expand access to tutors, aides, and in-home providers who can supplement the needs of students with IEPs. Additionally, the controlling board approved $5 million to support businesses impacted by the East Palestine train derailment. The funds will be distributed as zero-interest loans to help with expenses and recovery efforts. Businesses located within a two-mile radius of East Palestine are eligible. The Go Lunch Summer Food Program kicked off this past week at the Linden Community Center. After COVID, we're seeing our numbers go back up. Um, People are out more, children are out more, they're eating more, they're spending more time out in the community. So this provides an opportunity for every child to get a meal. The Linden Community Center, just one of the many locations where food will be distributed over the summer. Each spot has different dates and times when the food will be offered. Still ahead, colorful cash flow. It gave me the capacity and space to uh, focus on a priority of mine, and that's the LGBTQIA plus community. Kind of just the one. Our community support is helping the LGBTQ plus community reach its business dreams. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. We are celebrating Pride in Central Ohio all month long right here on 10TV. And today, we put the spotlight on a couple of local entrepreneurs. Starting a business is hard enough. Starting one on your own, even harder. And that's why community support is so important. 10TV's Gabriela Garcia has this story. 
COVID-19 got a lot of people to shift their priorities. It was extremely difficult being in the position of what do you do during a pandemic and where do you pivot? But using that as a motivator and not a crutch, it gave me the capacity and space to uh, focus on a priority of mine, and that's the LGBTQIA plus community. Ty Collier worked for his family-owned company in wholesale apparel before deciding to start Quirencia, an LGBTQ apparel and accessories brand based in Columbus. And in these last three years, we've sold a lot of these fans last year. It's been fantastic. We've grown extremely fast and we've had a lot of support from our community. Support from Chase Bank's free minority entrepreneurs program started to help people like Collier start their business on the right foot. Some of the things that we have gained from the program is getting certified as a minority owned business. We just hired an events coordinator, which has opened the door to um, contracts and opportunities with corporations and the federal government. Thanks to those Central Ohio connections, Corencia is partnered with Stonewall Columbus for Pride, taking on all their merchandise for this year's event. We've already started the preparation for that. A even big though. leg up that Letha Pugh. Community support is what keeps us going. It's hard being a small business owner. Knows all too well. Letha and her wife Wendy started Bake Me Happy 10 years ago after noticing a need for gluten-free treats in Central Ohio. And starting out... Money was difficult. It wasn't like people were knocking down the door to, to help us. We spent our own personal funds to, to get Bake Me Happy started. Since 2013, Pew says their community has rallied behind their business and their message of safety and inclusion for everyone. Even making sure the bakery wasn't left out to dry during the pandemic. The Urban League has supported us in a couple different ways. Primarily through the pandemic, I did receive some support from Franklin County. Illuminator Award. Now, Ms. Letha Pugh. A winner of multiple community awards, Letha Pugh gets to pay it forward. Helping the Urban League make decisions on how to help new business owners get started. It's kind of been a nice 360. I mean, it's taken 10 years, but being on the other side of it and being being able to help help people live their dreams be a lot further working together as opposed to tearing each other apart. In Columbus, Gabriela Garcia, 10 TV News. And you can learn more about the support for the LGBTQ plus community at 10TV.com. Now to a story you are only going to see right here on 10TV. More baby-changing stations coming to Columbus locations. 50 businesses, organizations, and the Parks Department received 130 changing tables through a grant program. They had pickup at Columbus Public Health. Last month, Columbus City Council approved $25,000 for the program after the group Advocates for Change pushed for equal access to diaper changing tables throughout the city. We've especially heard from moms uh, through this campaign saying how hard it's been to always be the ones changing diapers publicly. So, uh, you know, we knew we were going to hear a lot of stories. I'm just uh, we were overwhelmed by the amount of moms that we heard from that that were thankful for this campaign. Lofi says they hope to expand this initiative to other types of changing tables in the future. And they are already hearing from other communities across the country looking to replicate the program. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Face the State. We wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. 
no one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Earlier this month, a U.S. Conference of Mayors held its annual convention in Columbus, and I had a chance to talk a couple of weeks ago with Finley's mayor, who participated in the event. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Mayor Christina Mern from the city of Finley. How are you? I am well, thank you. Good morning. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, you were just recently at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, conveniently located in Columbus. Yes, it was definitely great to be able to travel uh, such a short distance and be able to feel like I was co-hosting my colleagues from across the country showing off Ohio a little bit. Yeah, now you are, what, in the last year, I guess, of your first four-year term, is that right? Correct. And what were some of the things, uh, just in a nutshell, that you picked up at this conference? Yeah, this, you know, the conferences are always great to get together with my colleagues and, and hear what they're, we, what they have going on, what's going well, what's not going well. Um, a couple of things that we discussed um, that I had kind of advocated for and against were um, the new EPA PFAS restrictions, which would be very burdensome to communities across the country. Um, I advocated for improvements in our electrical grid infrastructure, uh, really because of national defense. But some of the things that you know are impacting Finley specifically are obviously continued economic development, figuring out how we may be able to repurpose older buildings into housing or incubator space to support entrepreneurs. Uh, we also talked about you know the mental health crisis and homelessness and how it's impacting communities of all sizes and the challenges that poses. Um, we also talked about, you know, EPA, or not EPA, my apologies, um, Department of Transportation and how we can get funding from the different programs that are currently available to put to good use in our community on road improvements. Um, so really just so much different information, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff that mayors deal with on a daily basis. It was a very productive meeting. 
Well, some folks around Ohio may not be aware of, although we do report it, that uh, for eight years running now, Site Selection Magazine has ranked Finley number one in business growth nationally for the city your size. Yes, actually, it became nine years this year. Wow, so nine we're years. definitely doing well. And it's um, Site Selection Magazine is such a great resource because many times when companies are looking to locate or expand their business, they hire site selectors. And so the site selectors keep an eye on what communities are good to work with. And Finley has been very successful in not only attracting new business um, and bringing in those businesses into our community, but also supporting and growing our existing businesses, which I think is a really important story to tell because it says, we're not just about getting you here, we're about making sure that once you're here, you're successful. And I think that that is uh, speak volumes of our community. What is it about the business location and popularity of it? How do, why does it work? What's, what has it got going for it? So the city of Finley is about 41,000 people. The county is about 75,000, so it is a smaller community. Um, but we've been fortunate over the years to have Marathon Petroleum um, World Headquarters is located here in Finley, as well as we have Ball Corporation. Whirlpool dishwashers are all made here. We have the University of Finley. We have a private um, nonprofit hospital, Blanchard Valley Health System. Um, and I think that really our communities method of operation is what makes us so successful. Our people are about working together and solving problems in unique ways. Um, And I think that that helps businesses be really successful. Our economic development office is private, which I also think has been really important because it's funded by other businesses in the community that want to see us be successful. And that allows them some freedom to go out and, uh, you know, work with private entities, work with developers, work with site selectors, and then pull in the city of Finley when they're ready for things to be a little more public. Um, And so I think that that's really helpful. But our community is just one that knows how to work together and get things done, and that's proven in those stats, but also so many other things that we've been able to accomplish. Talking with Finley Mayor Christina Muren. In recent years, uh, flooding has been a huge concern and a problem in Finley. How has the mitigation effort been going there? Yes, that flood mitigation is definitely the top thing on my list, and we've been able to make some great progress over the last couple of years. We definitely have work still to be done. Um, There were five main projects that we were working to complete. Two of the five are done, which was some transportation improvements to keep roads open during flood events, as well as some benching where you cut into the side of the river so that as the water rises at a certain level, it fills in an area and helps keep the water level a little more even. Uh, We still have a second phase of benching that we'll be doing right in downtown. We have uh, the Eagle Creek Basin that will be um, constructed south of uh, Finley, right along Eagle Creek, and that's about 800 acres of property that are going to be turned into a dry basin. Um, And then during flood events, as Eagle Creek rises, it will fill up that area um, and then slowly be let back into the Eagle Creek that feeds into the Blanchard River and then improvements to the Norfolk Southern Railroad Bridge. So I would expect with those final three projects that we'd be breaking ground within the next year um, on all of those projects and have construction complete in the next three. So it's very exciting, uh, but definitely in that home stretch where all the tire hits the road and, you know, we really get going. So with the work that has been done to this point, then, does it take more rain now than it used to to cause a problem? Yes. 
It definitely appears to be um, that way. So we obviously haven't been able to get a full FEMA remap or those adjusted at this point in time. We're, we're very much uh, looking forward to getting that done. But we've had a couple of storm events where if you watch the um, National Weather Service expected our forecast to be, our crest to be much higher. And I think as we've seen, the benching has provided benefit and been able to keep that lower. Um, so we definitely have seen that, that functioning as it should. Was it, uh, what, maybe 10 years ago or so that you had, what, like half the town flooded during one event? Yeah, so in 2007 was our most significant flood, and we had um, over three feet of flood water in our downtown. Um, and so that was really significant because then all along the creeks and rivers, obviously, you know, I remember having to evacuate my home. We were fortunate that we didn't get water in the house, but it came up completely around it. Um, so, and then in 2012, we had another one. In 2017, we had another one. Um, so, you know, we definitely saw them more frequently. Um, and so it's something that we definitely need to address. You know, it's, it's something that's not new. Unfortunately, you know, night back in 1913, much of Ohio had significant flooding. But uh, we really feel like we need to solve this and make sure that every time it rains, people aren't worried about it. Well, it's, uh, it's also great that given that problem, because it's been a few years now since it's been a, a big flood, but I mean, you had several years there where that was happening, and yet for the business location to be as strong as it is, that says a lot about what the town is doing. Yeah, you know, I think um, one thing I didn't mention earlier about why we're so successful is our proximity to major highways. You can definitely have great access to market to, you know, North America in general within about a day's drive. And so that's really important. But, yes, we have strong business partners in our community that recognize that Finley is a special place and, you know, you're going to have uh, weather events and natural disasters no matter where you go. Um, so being able to step up and make sure that we solve ours to the best of our ability, again, shows how Finley works to get things done. Now, you're a Republican. When you're at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, how much does that matter? How do the parties get along at that level? And also, is there a difference between big cities? You know, a lot of the big city mayors are Democrats. And I'm wondering, in a city your size, is it more of a mix or, you know, how does that dynamic work? Yeah, so there are obviously, as in any group, there's differences of opinions, and, you know, there are a lot of things that I disagree with that the conference will speak out on. Um, But overall, when it's the mayors together, we really focus on what we have in common and what are the solutions that are working. And it doesn't matter if it's from a Democratic mayor, a Republican mayor, a big city mayor, a small city mayor. Mayors want to learn, and we're not afraid to steal other people's ideas to help our communities. Um, So, you know, it definitely comes up, but not so much when we're actually in the meetings and with each other. It's more so just kind of out in the public that people say, oh, well, that was a very liberal stance. And, you know, I just share with people just because an organization says something that I'm a part of doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. And that being a part of those conversations is important because I'm able to share my, you know, more Republican, smaller community viewpoint on issues that maybe they wouldn't have thought of. And I have had really good responses and conversations with mayors from across the country and all community sizes and backgrounds that I think we're able to respect each other's viewpoints and opinions and learn from each other. Talking with Finley Mayor Christina Murren, just a couple of minutes to go here. I did want to ask about the opioid uh, epidemic and how Finley is faring in that. That's obviously a, a nationwide problem. Yeah, so Finley definitely is, you know, impacted by it, just like every other community across the country. Um, We've definitely seen an increase coming out of COVID, more so on meth 
and um, some other drugs. But I would say we have been able to, again, because of how our resources are set up, how we've been working as a community, we have seen a less dramatic increase than other communities. Um, so I'm really proud of that, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and we've been working with organizations like the Adamus Board and our focus recovery groups and celebrate recovery groups to really use anything we can to help folks that are struggling with mental health and substance use disorders. So you're a, a Finley native. Uh, you're quite young for a mayor. Uh, <laughs> what are your political aspirations? Oh, goodness. I really don't know. And that, that is complete truth. Um, you know, I feel so fortunate to be here serving my community um, that I grew up in and love so much. I wasn't planning to be here. And um, so I really don't have plans. You know, I have another four-year term, so I have four and a half years that I'm dedicated to this office. And, um, you know, I, I'm a believer in the Lord opens the right doors. And so I could see myself staying in this position. I could see myself going back in the private sector and if it's appropriate in, in other positions. But right now, I'm really just enjoying leading the city of Finley. So if somebody said to you, in 10 years, you're going to be, you know, a state representative, would that surprise you or not surprise you at this point? <laughs> that one would surprise me. I really don't have uh, much interest to go to a state representative or state senator office. I think I can have a little more impact uh, as mayor uh, at this point in time. Okay. And you said that you did, never expected uh, to be mayor. What was it that prompted you to, to get into that? Yeah, so I've always naturally been interested in politics and leadership and very involved in the community. Um, but I was in the private sector and had a really successful career and a, a great path laid out uh, within the organization I was operating at. And, um, you know, really when Mayor Mahalik, who's now Director Mahalik with the Department of Development, mm -hmm announced that she was going to be stepping down. I uh, was contacted by a couple of folks within the city of Finley saying, hey, you know, we've interacted with you a couple times. We think you would do a really good job. Lydia thinks highly of you. Is it something that you would be interested in? Um, so it was definitely people seeing my potential and um, the opportunity for me to give back. And, um, you know, what, after I talked to my husband and sat down and, you know, thought and prayed about it, I was like, yeah, you know what? I think if it's meant to be, it will be. And let's, let's see where it goes. Outstanding. Uh, Finley Mayor Christina Murren, anything else you'd like to add? No, I appreciate you reaching out. Great. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Dom Tiberi. Nine years ago, we lost our daughter Maria to a distracted driving accident. To honor her life, we have pledged to educate young people on the dangers of distracted driving. We funded simulators and visited schools to inspire more than 120,000 young drivers to stay safe. Help spread Maria's message in your school. Contact us at mariasmessage at 10tv.com. And remember, distracted driving is dangerous driving. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Lisa Hamilton, who is the president and CEO of Annie E. Casey Foundation. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Annie E. Casey Foundation? Well, the Annie E. Casey 
Foundation is devoted to making sure all children and youth in the United States have a bright future. We're a national foundation based in Baltimore, and we work to make sure that all kids grow up in strong families, that their families are financially stable, and that they can grow up in great communities with lots of resources to help them thrive. And you have a new report out talking about uh, child care and also how the states rank when it comes to child well-being. Yes, the Annie E. Casey Foundation's annual Kids Count data book tracks how children are faring nationally and in every state using 16 indicators related to economic well-being, education, health, and family and community factors. And we use that data to then rank states for each indicator and then how children are doing overall and publish that data so that decision makers and the public can have reliable data on child well-being to make great decisions both for programs and for policies that affect their lives. Each year, we pick a topic to focus on, and this year, as you noted, we are focusing on our nation's broken child care system. A good child care system is really important to all of us. It's important for children who need positive early experiences as they get ready for school. It's important for parents so that they can go to work and earn money for their families. And it's important for our economy overall so that we can have the workers that we need to have a strong healthy economy. And how is Ohio stacking up in these categories? Well, Ohio this year ranked 29th overall. I'll note that we've got data in the book this year from 2021. That's the latest data that we have available. And so that means we are now able to have a partial picture of how the pandemic affected kids and families. So Ohio, as I said, is around the middle of the packet at 29. And overall, we see that about half of our 16 indicators, about eight of them, um, were worse compared to last year's data book. Four stayed the same and four improved, and we saw that Ohio fared um, very similar to those national trends. And some of those uh, data points are percentage of kids in poverty, those uh, teens who are not in school but also not working, the percent of fourth graders not proficient in reading, child and teen death rate. I mean, you cover a lot of different areas. We do. We think it's important to give a holistic picture of how children are doing. As I said, we're looking at everything from the financial stability of their families to their health to the kinds of families and communities that they're growing up in and certainly education. Um, the good news and bad news of this data, um, certainly we recall in the height of the pandemic how many people um, lost their jobs. And so in this report, you can see that there were fewer parents who were financially stable, and and it reflects that many of them had lost their jobs. We've also heard lots of reporting about how educational achievement was hit hard during the pandemic. So many children were learning virtually, and it certainly was making it difficult for them to succeed. But even Amidst these challenges, um, child poverty remained unchanged at the national level and more children had health insurance. And so that means that if we make good policy decisions, we can help kids and families um, survive through tough times. Well, when it comes to the pandemic, of course, uh, that was tremendously disruptive for everybody. And uh, you said that your data is from 2021, which was the second year of the pandemic, which in itself was, uh, st- we were pretty mired in it still. So how difficult is it to collect reliable data from that year? I mean, it, it, I would guess that the, it was pretty difficult. 
Well, we certainly saw lots of challenges collecting data in 2020. This data comes from federal uh, sources, so this is government data that is regularly and um, uh, you know collected through government sources. So 2020 was a challenging year to collect, collect the data, and for that reason, we aren't uh, comparing as much. Um, last year's data book to the data this year. But by 2021, we started to see more of that um, government data come back online. And so we certainly know this is reliable information that does start to give us a window into how um, children and families and communities were faring. Talking with Lisa Hamilton, the president and CEO of Annie E. Casey Foundation, you mentioned child care is one of the areas that you're focusing on. What are some of the solutions or proposals uh, that your organization backs to help in this regard? Well, there are 23 million children under the age of five living in the United States, and about half of them are in some form of care so that their parents uh, can work. And we know that it's important to have a strong child care system so that uh, those those children can thrive, their parents can work, and, and um, uh, businesses can have the workers that we need. We think that there are a number of things that can be done to strengthen our child care system because at this point, there aren't enough workers um, to provide the care that's needed. It's not always accessible to families at the times they need it and the places they need it. And we've all uh, experienced, I think, or heard about how expensive child care can be. The national average cost in 2021 was about $10,600 per child. That's a huge chunk of any family's household budget. So to help address some of these challenges, we think that state and local governments can use some of their remaining pandemic recovery funds to invest in increasing the amount of uh, child care services that are available. Congress can reauthorize and strengthen the Child Care Development Block Grant. That's a funding source um, for public pre-kindergarten and Head Start. We know that Congress can um, help do more to help student parents. About 30% of students in college these days are parents. And so there are ways that um, colleges and employers can help co-locate child care to help those student parents. And we know that there's more needed to help business owners um, and parents access the subsidies they need. Only about one out of six um, families have access to the supports that are available to help provide for child care. And certainly we want to ensure that those um, business owners who are providing home-based child care have access to the capital they need to start up and expand. So I hope you hear that there are a lot of things that we can do to strengthen our child care system in America, and it certainly will benefit all of us. The pandemic was the perfect storm for that industry, wasn't it? Because you had kids who were no longer uh, in school, they were staying at home. The parents might have been working at home, so they didn't need as much child care. But then, uh, you know, when the when that need ticked up again, a lot of people had left that work. It was a very challenging time. As you know, one of the um, biggest drivers of challenge in this industry now is the lack of child care workers. Um, unfortunately, that's an uh, an uh, business, a a profession um, that has incredibly low wages. And um, unfortunately, that has ripple effects um, for those um, workers, families, um, the 
vast majority of them are women, many of them women of color. Uh, and so the low wages in the industry make it difficult for businesses to recruit staff, but even when they are employed, they aren't employed um, uh, at wages that enable them to take care of their family or, or to have sustainability sustainability in that field. So, yes, it is. it has um, really been difficult finding staffing in that industry, and um, many workers, particularly women, have been challenged to return to work um, and to stay stably employed because of the difficulty in finding affordable, quality, accessible child care. Lisa, if folks want to see your Kids Count data book information, where do they find it? We'd love for you to visit our website at www.aecf, that's anieekcfoundation.org, and you can find the data book itself there, a profile of your state, and a lot more information and data about kids, families, and communities. Great. Lisa Hamilton, President and CEO, Annie E. Casey Foundation. Thank you for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.